Thank you. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning, and I'd ask that you kind of join in and thank the worship team for that wonderful opportunity bringing us into worship today. Very, very good. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to open up the service this morning a little differently. I'm going to open with a disclaimer. It's rather unusual to start with a disclaimer in a Sunday morning service, but uh, the events I'm going to recount to you are, are purely fictitious, and, and we shouldn't identify them with any particular person uh, in the church or otherwise, but, you know, it's that time of the year where, you know, we're in hunting season, and, you know, a lot of people are out enjoying God's creation in that fashion. So this story has nothing to do with what I'm going to speak on today, but I just thought I'd share it with you anyway. <laughs> there are two hunters, and they chartered a small plane to take them deep into Idaho for a week of hunting moose. Now, during the week, they managed to bag six moose, which, of course, is kind of funny in itself. But anyway, they just hang with me on this story. They, they shot six moose, and they were loading the plane to return. And the pilot said, hey, I'm sorry, man, but we can only take four. We can only take four moose. However, both of the hunters objected very strenuously, and they said, well, last year we shot six. We shot six moose. And that pilot let us take them all, and he had the same plane as you do. So reluctantly, the pilot gave in, and all six moose were loaded. Well, surprisingly enough, the plane was able to take off successfully. However, while attempting to cross the mountains near Diamond Peak on the way back to Idaho Falls, even on full power, the little plane couldn't handle the load, and it went down. But somehow, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, isn't that right, Keith? By the grace of God, surrounded by moose bodies, both hunters survived the crash. <laughs> and after climbing out of that wreckage, the first hunter turned to the second hunter and asked, do you have any idea where we are? And the second hunter replied, well, I think we're pretty close to where we crashed last year. <laughs> so, okay, that's it. I'm done. Any, any questions? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's open the service, this part of the service with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we're truly blessed today, Lord, to have your word. Father, we just pray that you speak to us today through these words that I bring forth. Just empower me through the Holy Spirit, Lord, to be able to convey what you have for us today, Lord. We're just so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the prophecy that's in your word. We're so thankful for the confirmation that it brings truth and value to our lives, Lord, and we just ask for your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So you may recall a couple weeks back we had Pastor Jim Powell here, and he showed us that each book of the Bible contains insights and references to Jesus. And that alone is a powerful testimony to the validity of Scripture having a constant thread across the writings of 40 different people over a 1,500-year period of time could only come from the mind of God. Amen to that. Now, we Christians, we see the Bible as the Word of God, but let's step back a bit and ask ourselves, why did God decide to reveal His nature and plans for creation in the form of a book? Why did He inspire human authors 
via the Holy Spirit to write specific things down that were compiled later on into a book. So let's talk about and think about the advantages that using a book brings. When we write things down, it creates a record of the author's intent and thoughts. As an illustration, we all probably played the game as children where we sit a bunch of people down in chairs in a big circle, and the first person whispers into the second person's ear some kind of phrase or sentence, and then that each person is supposed to pass that along to the next person. And by the time you get to the end, well, of course, it's, it's quite a bit different than where you started. So that's just an illustration of why using oral traditions to pass down things from generation to generation may not be the most reliable method for something important as the Word of God. So with a book, with proper care and preservation, Writings or books can be made available over very long periods of time through duplication, careful duplication of manuscripts, and later on, like we have now with modern technology, where we can mass-produce books on a grand scale. In addition, books are available to many different people in many different places and can be translated into many different languages so that everybody can receive the same information from the author. A book is easily accessible and allows for the conveyance of more detail than is typical in verbal conversations, even the one I'm having with you today. I know it's hard to believe, but okay. <clears throat> Lots of detail can be included in books, and we all know that from our educational background. So it seems reasonable to us for God to use writings compiled into a book as his chosen method for revealing himself to humanity. However, there is a downside. There's a downside. Books can be manipulated. Manuscripts could be manipulated. So how do we know that the Bible today is reliable? How can any book prove that it really is God's word? What gives us confidence to believe that these 40 human authors who recorded the 66 books of we have in our Bible today, how do we know that they were really inspired by God? So that's where I want to go today. Now, the veracity of the Bible can be supported in a variety of methods. Thankfully for you all and your time, I'm only going to talk about one of them. <laughs> okay. The point that I mentioned at the beginning uh, from Pastor Jim, the fact that Jesus is found in all books of the, of the Bible is one good evidence that there was a common author. Okay. However, today I'm going to briefly cover just another one, <laughs> and that would be biblical prophecy. Now, if true prophecy is proven to exist in the Bible, then the Scriptures contain information that can only come from God. In other words, the Bible would contain history spoken in advance. This information cannot come from the minds of men. It can't come from the ideas of human authors. It also gives the unbeliever something to think about, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. <laughs> okay? So we're first going to turn to our first scripture of the morning. It's in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. And I'm reading today, and all these scriptures that I'm reading will be from the NIV. So, Isaiah 46, 
Verse 9, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, what is still to come. My purpose, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Now please note the phrase, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Right there, God is telling us that his word will contain prophecy. Knowing that God speaks through his prophets provides a basis for the Bible having authority in our lives. It's valid. We can test it. It's reasonable to trust the rest of God's promises if that proves out. If these things are true, then we have confidence that the author, which in this case is God, will be truthful in the other things he tells us in his scripture. Okay. In addition, God lays out the condition to prove that he has spoken. Wait to see if the prophecy happens. That's his constant instruction. This is supported by several scriptures. The first one is found in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. You find there in verse 18, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not, so do not be alarmed. It sounds pretty simple and it's very straightforward, but it's absolutely true. Wait and see if it comes to pass. Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 9. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prophecy or prediction comes true. We can also look in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 33. If we turn there. <clears throat> when all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. And finally, in the New Testament, let's go to the New Testament for a second, where we get some really good detailed guidance and very clear guidance in Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 19 through 21. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture can come about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, <laughs> if you want to talk about prophecy on a Sunday morning, it can be a real challenge <laughs> to, 
to figure out, oh, Lord, where do I need to go with this? What do I need to look at? What do you want me to bring? So it's a real challenge because there's so many to choose from. It really is. After all, about one-third of the Bible, by many estimations, contains predictive prophecy. Around 1,800 of them in the Bible. More than one-half of these have already been fulfilled. So that's in the neighborhood of 900 prophecies that you could possibly bring up and look at. Well, we're not going to do 900 prophecies this morning, so calm down. We'll be fine. It's all going to be okay, I promise. (laughs) So to narrow things down a bit, it's constructive to think about what type of prophecy is not useful for proving the Scriptures. Now, this may sound a little odd, but one example would be obviously yet to be fulfilled or future prophecy, something that is prophesied and then will take place even beyond our time frame. So we can't point to anything. We can't prove that it came true. We need to continue to wait as we're admonished in the Scriptures. So it's hard to prove that the Bible is accurate if projected stuff hasn't happened yet. That's pretty straightforward. Even I can figure that out. Or if the fulfillment of a given prophecy occurs too close to when the prophecy was spoken. Like uh, maybe a prophet would say, uh, well, next summer... You know, or next year, we're not going to, it's going to be a year of drought. We're not going to have any rain. And so next year, it either happens or it doesn't. But that is really pertinent to the people that are living during that time frame. But for us, 2,500 years later, you know, that's really not a good example of what I want to bring up today to prove out the Scriptures. So that's probably not a good example of a prophecy that would be useful for what I want to cover. But a key factor to consider is if the prophecy is specific. In other words, we don't want some vague, oh, this might happen, that might happen. It needs to be a prophecy that is specific, okay, in its timing and related to details that we can cross-check, if you want to use that word, cross-check with, with history. So, This would allow us to review historical records outside of the Bible, which is a key point. So the prophecy is in the Bible, but we can look to secular records in history and see if that prophecy really took place. So this morning, I decided, or for this morning, I didn't just decide this this morning. That's, (laughs) I'm not that good. (laughs) Um, I decided to look at maybe a, a section that doesn't get as much attention as some other classic prophecies, you might say. But I was looking for something where I could kind of cross-check things with historical records. So, so I decided to focus on Daniel chapter 11. Now, the book of Daniel is, 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 is replete with prophecy of all kinds. Fulfilled prophecy, unfulfilled, yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. Uh, A lot of it uh, is is very detailed, which makes it a good candidate for what I want to talk about today. But the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel began uh, recording his writings in 604 B.C., before Christ, which is 18 years prior to the destruction of the first temple, which was destroyed in 586 B.C., Now, just this one section of Daniel that I looked at, about 35 verses is where I kind of focused on, contains 135 prophecies. 
So I said, wow, that's too much. I can't, can't. <laughs> There's no way I could cover 135 prophecies in, in 30 minutes or so. So, but that just goes to show how dense, if you want to use that term, that section of Daniel is with detail, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Almost every clause in that section is, is some kind of prophecy. And, and in fact, I must confess, you know, I, I've read through Daniel multiple times over the years, and when I get to this section of Daniel, I, I, my eyes kind of glaze over and I get lost in this king and that king and who's doing what to whom and which war is going which direction and, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I thought, you know, I need to, I need to pay a little more attention <laughs> to what I want to talk about if I want to focus on this today. So I, I understand if you felt the same way in the book of Daniel, I understand, I'm with you, but let's, let's try to get through what I wanted to cover today, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. So if you turn to chapter 11 in Daniel, verse 1, I'm just going to read through this, and then we're going to go back and step through a, th a few things uh, after I read through it one time. So, <clears throat> in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will rise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he's going to stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. We already see there's quite a bit of detail there. We've got numbers of kings. We've got places like Greece, you know, things that we can kind of look for. Verse 3, when a mighty king will arise, so after these guys, a mighty king will arise, an even mightier king will arise, who will rule with great power, and do as he pleases. And then verse 4, after this last guy has arisen, after he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. I'll explain that in a minute. It will not go to his descendants. It will, nor will it have the power he exercised, so it's going to be weaker, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Okay? So let's back up and, and dig into this a little bit more, starting with verse 2. So, now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia. Now, if we start digging around in reliable history from that time period, we find three Persian kings. <laughs> see if I can get through this. <laughs> Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, and a different Darius than the first one I mentioned in verse 1. These kings are known in secular history under different names, which was almost traditional or common during that time, known as Cambyses, Pseudosmyrtus, and Darius Hystaspes. So these are the three kings that are referred to in the first portion of Daniel, chapter 11. But then a fourth, a fourth who will be far richer than the others when he has gained Power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Well, this fourth Persian king is known in history as King Xerxes. He was very wealthy. He was powerful. And as part of his conquest, he made an expedition against Greece in 480 B.C. Now, keep these time frames in mind. This is several hundred years, maybe 200 or a little bit more years after when Daniel wrote these things down. In 480 B.C., the second Persian invasion of Greece is what he led into 
into that country and was able to win some key land battles, such as the famous battle at Thermopylae, which was recently depicted in a graphic movie, uh, 300, for all you Zack Snyder fans. But he was unable to conquer Greece in the end. Now this matches up very well with Daniel's prophecy, which was written down a couple hundred years in advance, as I just mentioned. We can also look at verse 3. Then a mighty king will arise, as if these other guys weren't mighty. Well, a mightier king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. This turns out to be somebody that we've all heard about in our history classes. It was Alexander the Great, whose empire existed from 334 to 323 B.C. Now, he's considered to be one of the best, if not the best, military commanders in all of history. He was never defeated in battle. And he controlled a vast empire that spanned most of the known world at the time of his death in 323 B.C. And he was only 33 years of age by the time he did all of that. We're talking about land that goes as far to the west as Italy and beyond and as far east as well past what we consider Iraq into Turkmenistan and other countries. So it was in, in south into Africa. It was a huge empire. And he did that all by age 33. He did it through skill, cunning, uh, military knowledge and tactics. And he was so quick and probably brutal <laughs> that many nations just capitulated and said, okay, fine, <laughs> we're not going to fight you. You can be our king. So that's how he put together such a large kingdom in such a short period of time. So now we go to verse 4. After he has arisen, so this is talking about Alexander the Great, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So what happened to Alexander the Great when he died? Well, we already mentioned he put together a huge empire, but he dies of an illness, not from battle. He dies of an illness, and he leaves no successor. So consistent with the prophecy, the kingdom does not go to a member of his family, which is very surprising. In fact, there's a legend, some people give it credence, uh, that one of Alexander's companions asked him on his deathbed to whom he wanted to bequeath the kingdom. And it's reported that he said, to the strongest. So you can see what probably happened next. <laughs> there was a lot of infighting that happened after he passed away. But in a short period of time, the kingdom was split into four different pieces. Thus, we get the reference to four winds of heaven in the Bible. And this refers to north, south, east, and west, the four winds coming from different directions, refers to north, south, east, and west, which reflects the general location of each of these pieces or parts of the original kingdom relative to Jerusalem. And that's a key to understand, because when you look at a map, a historical map of this kingdom and how it was broken up, you're kind of going north, south, east, west. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But you've got to think about this is relative to Jerusalem, relative to the Jews who are writing this down. Okay, So two pieces, or I should mention, that each one of these 
four pieces went to one of his generals. So that's the way all the squabbles worked out. His generals were able to hold power and be able to create their own little sub-kingdoms in the relative areas. But two pieces of the kingdom surrounded Israel. And those are the two kingdoms or parts of the original kingdom that we find in Scripture. So one part went to a general by the name of Ptolemy. He was called the king of the south or the king of Egypt. And Seleucus was the king to the north. He's called the north king in the Scriptures a lot, or his heirs after him were also called the king of the north. He was the king of of Syria, what we think today of Syria. Now, the other two kingdoms are not mentioned in Daniel because they're far away from Israel and really had no influence, so there was no reason for them to be included in the prophecy. And in fact, the Egyptian and Syrian kingdoms, as you can well imagine, were very, very influential in Jerusalem because if you look at the maps of this from, from times past, you can see that Jerusalem is like in the middle of everything. Okay, So... There were subsequent wars between the kingdom of the south and the kingdom of the north, and Jerusalem was caught in the middle. So all the time that armies are moving to the north or moving to the south, they got to tramp through Israel to get there, which caused you know, a lot of issues <laughs> for, for the people of Israel. Now, this is just a little slice of what is contained in the rest of chapter 11. I've only covered four verses. Four verses. But yet we're able to go back to secular history and match things up. We're able to clearly see that, well, this, this Alexander the Great, what happened to him? Well, well shoot, his, his kingdom ended up in four pieces. It didn't go to his family. You know, all these things just line right up with words that were written hundreds of years in advance. Okay? This type of detail fulfilled prophecy continues for the next 31 verses in, da- in, in Daniel uh, chapter. In fact, it goes beyond that, but I'm just limiting it to the first 35 verses, which is fulfilled prophecy. What comes after that in chapter 11 is yet to be fulfilled. So there's even more than that in chapter 11 alone. These remaining verses prophesy the ones that I didn't include this morning. (laughs) These remaining verses prophesy all kinds of wars and intrigues instigated by the kings of the north and kings of the south. And the amazing thing is that subsequent recorded historical events continue to match up with these prophecies documented in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. So even stuff that I didn't include this morning, it continues just to match up right with each other. Now, at this point, I should note that the book of Daniel is often attacked by skeptics saying that it was written after the fact. In his book Against Christians, second century A.D. philosopher Porphyry put forth the notion that the book of Daniel was written no earlier than 165 B.C. Now, you should know that Porphyry was a pagan and did not believe, obviously, in biblical prophecy. So he stated that Daniel, he must have written in hindsight, not in advance of the events taking place. Because this was his rationale. It was just too good. It was just too good. In other words, he really offered no objective evidence for his position. But there are other things we can look at 
that do provide objective evidence that his thoughts are not correct. For instance, the Septuagint, which is, was a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now, you may not know much about these texts, but by the time we got to around 200, 210 B.C., before the time of Christ, most of the people living in Israel didn't speak Hebrew. Most of them spoke Greek. So it was very beneficial to the people to translate the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament to Greek so that they could ponder them and understand what God was, was saying. So Septuagint is, is, is a critical document of translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And that was completed about 220 B.C. And surprisingly enough, it included the book of Daniel. Amazing, isn't it? That means the book of Daniel already existed long enough and was translated into Greek by the Septuagint at least 60 years before the critics claim it was written. Seems pretty clear cut to me, but this and other historical evidences such as the analysis of the Hebrew and the Persian and the Babylonian words that were used by Daniel in his original text supports the earlier dating assigned to the writings of Daniel. And what I mean by that, we, we understand how English evolves over time. The English that was uh, used in 1611 for the New King James Bible is not the same way we speak today. Uh, back in the day when Daniel was writing, you know, he, he obviously was part of the migration back and forth to Babylon. And so there, his language of those days was different in its, its textual nature than what came 30 or 300, 400, 500 years later. So there's some things that you can look at to say, yep, that was written back then. It wasn't written here because of the words that were used. Anyway, and finally, the best authority <laughs> is Jesus himself. Okay, what better authority than that? Because he referred to Daniel as a prophet in Matthew chapter 24. And it's also recorded in Mark chapter 13. So I think that's a pretty good source. I think that's a pretty good source. So, Daniel, could you please come up today? Appreciate it. So, I hope that this brief look at how fulfilled prophecy lines up with, with recorded history has brought you some encouragement today. You know, that was my point. I wanted to bring encouragement to all of you to to understand that, you know, the Bible that we have today has validity. It can be trusted. We know the author. The author is God. The author is not some guy from 3,000 years ago who just decided to write stuff. You know, we go through different seasons in our life, including those hard times when we may start to question our faith, our faith in God. We might start to question his goodness towards us. We may start to wonder if he's still in control, like, Right now, is he still in control, given everything that's going on in the world? I, I wake up some mornings, and I'm going, wow, where is God? It's, is he still in control? But knowing that the word of God is true will build our faith. We can go to it. We can get the detail reference material that the Holy Spirit wants us to, to take in, to build our faith up. We're reminded in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by 
the Word of God. Okay. So, fulfilled prophecy gives us the confidence that the Bible is reliable and applicable to our lives because it was inspired by a loving God who cares about us and his creation. We know that God exists outside of time. Therefore, true prophecy comes from outside our time domain. Think about that one for a little bit. Okay. As we saw in Isaiah 46, God sees the end from the beginning. His word speaks of history in advance. So in closing, I encourage you, I encourage you to search out and study the many prophecies in the Bible. Uh, there's, like I said, there's a lot to look at. Because <laughs> I believe it's going to bring encouragement to you. It's bound to bring encouragement. The Holy Spirit's going to work through you and bring encouragement to your heart. Because it's going to provide you with the insights regarding not only what has taken place in the past, which has been my focus this morning, but just as importantly, if not more importantly, the things that are to come. So, with that, let's close in prayer. Let's close in prayer. Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, we thank you again for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you for this place. Lord, we thank you for this community. In fact, Lord, I lift up all our brothers and sisters around Idaho Falls, not just in this building, but Lord, elsewhere in this city, for those that call out to you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, Lord, I just ask that you bless them. Bless them, prosper them. Lord, I pray that you prosper this part of the tribe here at the Bridge Church. Father, I pray that you strengthen us. Lord, I pray that you guide us and direct us. Lord, I lift up Pastor Jay and Cindy to you this morning, Lord God. Father, we're just so thankful for them. We love them, Lord God, and we just give you thanks to you for them to be in our midst in this time. And Lord, we just pray for your guidance throughout this week. We pray that you lead us, guard us, keep us safe throughout this week, and bring us back again next Sunday, Lord, in accordance with your purpose and your will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.